The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. It's 23 this evening, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. It says uh, a bullet on the bulletin, Proverbs 23, 19 through 24, 22, and that's because the that entire passage has the same context and point, and that is do not envy the wicked. But for the sake of time, we're only going to cover half of it today. So we're going to look at Proverbs 23, 19. We're going to read through 24, 2, and we're going to read a couple of verses in chapter 20, a couple more verses in chapter 24. So Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 19, let's now hear God speak to us through his word. This is what God has to say. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. By wisdom, instruction, and understanding, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit and a dolorous is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their hearts devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. And then jumping down to verses 13 and 14. My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Well, this concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now bless it to us. Well, one of the great sins of fallen mankind is envy. It is as old as Eve. It is a strong desire to be like someone else out of discontentment. Now, we may understand envying the rich. And they seem to have this wonderful lifestyle, a lot of lack of troubles, and they can just buy whatever they want, it seems like. 
But here, what is interesting in the passage is that it is warning us against envying the wicked, the evil. And the question is, why are those who are evil envied? Why are they envied by the people of God? Well, it's because the wicked sometimes prosper in not following God's word. While we follow God's word and suffer for it and miss out on things, they disregard God's word and seem to be blessed by it. And so we can begin to envy the wicked. And not necessarily in the sense of we feel it in our heart, but we just begin to be like them. We begin to act like them. That is when we are envious of them, even though we may not cognitively realize it. It's we desire to be like them rather than to be like Christ. And so we end up following their ways and sometimes even saying, well, God's okay with it. It can be quite tempting to envy the wicked. So our passage helps us with this. There's three wicked people we should not envy, is the outline. We're going to look at two this week and then the next one, the last one next week. The first is the rebellious teen. The second is the drunkard. And the third is the powerful man. So first, the rebellious teen. And that is those who do not follow their parents' counsel. And this typically happens in the, the teen years. It's when children transition in adulthood, their sin starts to come out in different ways. They're wanting to establish themselves as their own person in an identity apart from their parents. They can begin to resist them. They might even despise their parents, think their parents get in the way. What do they know? And end up rejecting them. They will gladly take their provision, but not their counsel. Give me free place to live, give me utilities for free, but I don't want to take your counsel. Of course, that's nobody in here, right? Right? I'm watching you in the middle there. <laughs> and so the father says in verse 19, hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. He's pleading with his son to be wise, not just putting on an outward show to please the parents and get them off the back off their back, but instead truly in his heart. And so he says in verse 22, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. For here scripture commands children to listen to their father. And here's the incentive, because he gave you life. You would not even be alive if it wasn't for your parents. And of course, this also implies that they have a level of experience and wisdom that you don't have. They were alive even before you came to life. And we're not to despise our mother either when she is old. She on whom we once depended is now dependent on us, which can be a burden. And yet we are called to always honor our father and mother. We are to not despise them even when there's a reason to do so, such as old age. And we are to give them joy, not by following their profession or being exactly like them, but rather by gaining wisdom, verses 23 through 25. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He 
who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let, let her who bore you rejoice. So children are to give joy to their parents by being wise. This is not a self-centered demand from parents to say, be like me, follow my dreams and careers. I want to kind of live vicariously through you. Rather, parents are to rejoice over their kids being wise, as it says here. And so the father says in verse 23, buy truth and do not sell it. Now, of course, truth cannot be bought at an earthly price because of its great value, giving all the money you had, giving everything you had to buy it would actually diminish it because of its infinite worth. And so God gives it freely to all who ask, as James 1.5 says. But the Father here is using a figure of speech. He's using an illustration from the merchant world. The Father is saying that the wisest purchase you can ever make is to get wisdom. And it's such a valuable find that you don't want to sell it. You don't want to give it up. You know, when I was in Montana, I bought a hunting rifle and I took it out to a friend's place who was really familiar with guns, grew up with guns, owned like 200 of them. And he was shooting it. And when he saw the grouping one on top of another, he said to me, never sell that gun. Even if you end up buying the same exact model, you don't understand what you have. Uh, they, they really worked well that day in, that fa in the factory. And so valuable it was, even though I can make a certain amount of money off it, it's still not for sale because of its value. And maybe some of you have an heirloom or a, an autograph from a celebrity. It's, you could probably make a lot of money off of it, but you don't want to get rid of it because of its great value. It is not for sale. And that's what the Father is saying here. Not to say that you're going to get money off of wisdom, but don't ever get rid of it. It is such a valuable find. It's one of those things that you don't want to get rid of. And so he compares it to honey in verses 13 through 14 of chapter 24, where he says, My son, eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Now, they did not have candy and ice cream back then. Their sweet dessert was honey. And so the father is basically saying to his son, My son, Enjoy this sweetest of desserts. The father is no legalist or ascetic. But telling his son to eat honey is like telling us to eat ice cream. Now kids, if your parents said to you, eat your ice cream, eat ice cream, what would you do? No, I don't like it. No, you would say, I love it. Well, to get wisdom is like eating ice cream, but for your soul. A lot of times our sin says that wisdom is like Brussels sprouts or anchovies or whatever you don't like. But sin, oh, that is ice cream. That's what our deceitful hearts tell us. But the Word of God says that 
Wisdom is ice cream. Wisdom is good for your soul. Delight, it will be delight for you. Far from it being a killjoy and preventative of having fun like the wicked seem to have, wisdom is truly a delight and it is pleasant, enjoyable, and beneficial for the soul. And parents, let this be a call to us to be wise ourselves in modeling wisdom, even those of us who have adult children. We read in verse 26, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. We want our children's hearts. We want them to hear what we have to say when we are giving them the truth of the gospel, when we're giving them the truth of God's word. We want them to embrace it. And so the question is, do we live in such a way to gain their hearts? Do they know that we have their best interests at heart? That the reason we tell them these things is because we, they know we want what's best for them. And do we model wisdom so we could say, let your eyes observe my ways? Now, of course, we're going to follow we're going to fall short here to some extent. And this is why we need to keep in mind that this command is actually from God who is telling us, His children, my son, my son, let me have your heart and observe my ways. Observe my ways from my written and eternal word, my only son, that we may follow them. A second person that we are to not envy is a drunkard. Verses 20 through 21. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Now, this is not saying never ever be around a drunkard, never ever be a friend to a sinner who is of this world, who is in this sin. Otherwise, that would contradict what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, where he says, I did not at all mean that you can't associate with drunkards of this world. Also, our Lord Jesus Christ was a friend of such, so that he was even called a drunkard and glutton himself. Rather, what this is referring to is not going along with that lifestyle, not embracing it. Remember, the context is envying the wicked. Don't be like them. Don't want to keep company with them so that you emulate their lifestyle and value their lifestyle. That's what this is saying. Uh, the Bible here calls us to not envy drunkards and gluttons because they will come to poverty. Uh, they will destroy their life. And then the Father lets us step into the life of a drunkard for a moment to see things from his perspective in verses 29 through 35. In a poetic way, he asks rhetorically in verse 29, Who is woe? Who is sorrow? Who is strife? Who is complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who is redness of eyes? Of course, this is describing the life of a drunkard. He has woe and sorrow. His life is filled with the effect of sin. He has complaining because of the way of life that he thought would bring him joy is actually bringing him much sorrow and difficulty. And so the Father answers this rhetorical question in verse 30. It's those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine or mixed drink. So notice 
Notice this does not say those who have any wine whatsoever. Rather, this is those who tarry long over wine. And this is a biblical idiom referring to someone who is enslaved to alcohol. 1 Timothy 3.8 actually uses this when it says that deacons must not literally hold to or linger over much wine. Now our English translators translations translate this as addicted to or a given to much wine. But this is referring to somebody who idolizes alcohol so that he can't walk away from it. And the Father adds here, those who try mixed wine or mixed drink. Now this was a stronger drink that was mixed with drugs. Uh, they had drugs back then, uh, hallucinants, that was used in witchcraft. And so what uh, they would do here is that they would put these hallucinants into wine in order to make it strong so that you basically automatically became drunk upon drinking it. In his writings, Homer refers to his wife doing this in order to release the spirits. And it's to start seeing these things, kind of uh, entering into this world where you begin to hallucinate. That's why sometimes teachers are wondering, Wine is referred to as spirits. Not to say that that's what our wine does today, but just that association there. So this is not referring to moderately using God's good gift with self-control. Rather, this is referring to idolizing and abusing God's good gift. And so the Father warns in verse 31, Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. This is not saying you can't enjoy it or have any pleasure in God's good gift. Rather, this is referring to tearing long over wine, given the context, idolizing it, becoming so mesmerized by it that it captures you and controls you. Because even though it looks like pure pleasure and that it could be trusted as your ultimate delight and joy, it is dangerously deadly, as verse 32 says. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Those who idolize alcohol so that they become enslaved by it end up finding it to be like a serpent or an adder. Now let me ask you this. Who would ever want to say, hey, let me play with that poisonous snake or that poisonous spider? Like, Give me a poisonous snake so I could play with it. Well, nobody would want to do that. Be like, get, get that thing away from me. I know, I know people that want to burn their house down upon finding one spider. But all idols contain the sting of sin, the sting of death. And the Father describes the drunkard's experience in verses 33 through 34, where he says, Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of a mast. So this is describing someone in their drunkenness. They see strange things and aren't there. They say perverse things that were already in their heart, but the filter's gone. And so they end up saying these things. And the illustration the Father uses there is like being out to sea, where things are unstable and you don't have a solid footing. That's describing somebody who is in drunkenness. And then in verse 35, more of the drunkard's experience is described. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. 
They feed me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. A drunkard, a drunkard usually gets into trouble and gets into fights with others and can get struck and beat, but it doesn't hurt him because of the effects of alcohol. A friend of mine was telling me of a experience he had with a drunkard in, in the downtown area where a drunkard was stumbling along, and then he ended up falling down a 10-foot ledge, and friend thought he was going to have to call an ambulance, but the drunkard just got up and stumbled away. And he thought, this verse here, I got hurt, but I didn't feel anything. But the sad thing here is that the only thing the drunkard could think about is having another drink. What can I get for my drunkenness so that I could continue to drink? It's always on his mind. It's his idol in God. He is a slave to it. But there are other idols, what secular psychologists call addictions, that are mentioned here that are similar to drunkenness. In verse 21, the father mentioned gluttony alongside drunkenness. Now, this is not something that is often talked about in America today because it's probably the American way of life sometimes. You know, it's amazing for me to see some Southern Baptists or independent fundamental Baptist preachers rail against drinking any alcohol while gorging themselves at the potluck or being much overweight. A gluttony is lack of self-control and moderation in eating. What drunkenness is to alcohol, gluttony is to food. It is to be controlled and enslaved to food so that it is your idol and God, your comfort and Savior, to deliver you from your misery. It is to turn a good gift of God into a God itself. Now, it doesn't mean that any time you eat more than usual or feel full or feast and are satisfied that you have committed this sin. Neither does it necessarily mean that you're a glutton if you if you gain weight. Uh, it's there's other reasons why people gain weight, such as health or age or holding too much water or whatever the case may be. So it's not necessarily the case that the scale is going to tell you whether or not you are a glutton. And you could be a glutton even though you don't gain weight. And I remember back in my early 20s when I was. I can eat all I want. When I was uh, a dispatcher, I would basically sit down all day. I would almost nightly order a large Domino's pizza and eat it all myself. And I did not gain any weight whatsoever. I still remember the old timers uh, watching this and going, you know, I used to be like you. Now I look at food and gain weight. And I could kind of understand what they're saying now I mean, in my 40s. I don't think I'm at the point of looking at food and gaining weight, maybe smelling it and gaining weight. But the, the issue is not necessarily how much you weigh, but rather where your heart is. That's the issue. Uh, the, the issue is the heart. Loving God and enjoying His good gifts and not replacing God. It is using His good gifts in moderation and self-control with thanksgiving in your heart to Him. Now, don't become a legalist and suddenly begin counting calories tomorrow. Oh, 2,001 calories and one calorie to being a glutton. I need to pay, pay for it now by, you know, not eating tomorrow or something like that. And the takeaway here isn't that we need to all go on a diet or 
uh, do the, what's that called, the Daniel plan or whatever. Uh, the takeaway is this. Enjoy God's good gifts with thankfulness in moderation and self-control. and Do not idolize them. And guess what? You are going to fail. You are not going to love God perfectly with your whole heart. And so trust Christ in His righteousness. Now in the same cant as drunkenness and gluttony is also sexual sin. Verses 26-28. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit and a dolorous is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. So the father wants his son to pay attention to him, to have the word of God filling his heart. And why is that? Well, a prostitute and an adulteress is a narrow well. Prostitute and adulteress represent those who are sexually sinful. The, the wicked and deceitfulness of our hearts think this is true freedom. Breaking away from the restrictive boundaries of, of confining this in marriage and to only one person. You could spread your wings and fly away from narrow restrictions is what our sin says. However, Scripture says here that what is actually restrictive is sexual sin. It is like a deep pit which was dug back then to capture wild beasts. Once you fell in, you could not get out. One of my favorite areas to tread around in in Montana had old mine shafts that weren't marked. And my friends and I would wonder, what would happen if one of us fell into it? We don't have cell reception out there. Uh, it's like 60 feet deep. It's kind of narrow. Probably not going to be able to get out of it. And so there was uh, a healthy fear of getting stuck in it. And that's what this is saying here with regards to sin. This is not true freedom. Our sinful hearts would make us believe it is, but it's actually a narrow pit. And even worse, it's like a deep well. How many of you would like to be stuck down in a deep well? Well, that's the way sin is. It's being trapped in darkness. It is not spreading your wings and flying. It's not letting loose from the restriction of God's law, as Satan, tried, as Satan convinced the woman of. Did God really say you shall not? True life is breaking away from that that restriction and eating the forbidden fruit. Ever since our hearts have believed that. However, here we see that it is not spreading your wings and fly to eat the forbidden fruit, but it is being stuck in a narrow well. It is falling into a mine shaft. We should not envy the wicked so as to be like them. Instead, we should pity them. Thanks be to God. This is what Christ has done for us. He pitied us sinners when we were in the pit of sin. He is called the friend of sinners who met with drunkards, gluttons, and prostitutes. Uh, The Pharisees were appalled at Jesus doing this and thought, Aren't you just supposed to stay away from all this? Aren't you just supposed to follow the rules like us? And then you will be 
okay. But the Lord Jesus knew what sinners really needed. They needed a Savior to pull them out of the narrow pit of sin. And this is exactly what the Lord has done in His great mercy. As Psalm 40 says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He's the one that came to earth to save sinners by putting on humanity. Living that perfect life that we should have lived but we could not live, but He did it for us. And then going to the cross and facing the wrath for our sin, for our digging around in this pit in order to pull us out of it by virtue of us being united to Him in in His death, burial, and resurrection. We have come out of that pit, beloved. That is our way out of the pit. And it's remembering this that is the way out of it when we fall back into it as believers. The very first step when we fall back into sin is to again believe the Gospel. To believe that Christ has rescued us from this pit. That we are not those who are enslaved to sin, but we've been rescued. We've been delivered. We have been pulled out of this pit of destruction. And our feet have been set upon a rock. So we do not need to give ourselves over to this any longer. It is to find strength in this new identity. The 19th century Reformed Pastor Charles Bridges expressed it well this way, and I'll end with this. He says, The mighty, though despised instrument against these sins is Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is this which when vows, pledges, resolutions all have failed, this works secretly, yet most effectually imparting new principles, affections, and appetites. The drunkard becomes sober. The unclean holy, the glutton temperate, the love of Christ overpowers the love of sin. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would show us the love of Christ, how he has loved us and pulled us out of this pit so that we do not desire to dive back in. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.